Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this Investment Outlook special, Phil Atreid, Head of Investment Consulting, talks with some of our most senior investment experts to draw out the key insights to take into 2021 from what has proved to be an unprecedented year in financial markets. He is joined by Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, Ian Aylward, Head of Fund and Manager Selection, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Hello and welcome to this Word on the Street Annual Outlook Special. I'm Phil Attree, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and for this podcast, we've assembled four senior members of the investment team uh, and grilled them on their expectations for 2021. So we have Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, who you'll all know well, and if I know him, he'll be telling us that most of this forecasting is is pretty much a waste of time. Uh, We also have Rob Smith, our Head of Behavioural Finance. Um, He's going to be telling us why that is the case, uh, but also hopefully telling us what we can do instead. And then, of course, we have um, Ian Aylward, our head of manager and fund selection, and John Paul Yeagers, who can both hopefully give us some useful investment tips in amongst all of the you know, inherent uncertainty uh, of what does clearly lie ahead in 2021. Well, turning to you, let's just let, let's start with you. I, I know you complain about these annual outlooks every year, um, so kind of let's get it over with. <laughs> Sorry, Phil. Uh, I am a bit predictable and I know it's a bit buzzkill. When you think about it, it's a weird idea when you stand back um, and take a look at the industry's annual sort of soothsaying binge. It's not just financial services either. Everywhere, the arrival of December seems to coincide with the idea that we were sudden, we are suddenly afforded a clearer glimpse of the future than in other months. Perhaps the mince pies are sprinkled with uh, special dust. And if they are, then we're in luck because I've already eaten about 100, probably more than that. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. But there is useful insight and information contained within them somewhere. Is that not the case? Uh, well, yes. Yeah. No, actually, there is, Phil. An, an important part of investing is is trying to gauge what kind of investor expectations are already embedded uh, in market prices. So you you know, you can get a sense of what might disappoint or positively surprise those expectations. So yeah, you know, the fact that the industry produces so many documents on what it expects at this time of the year or the year ahead, it kind of helps you to locate the so-called consensus. Um, and very simplistically, you know, right now, um, but there seem to be two rough centers of gravity out there right now in terms of views of how the next years will pan out. And the first camp are those that see the future as a kind of rough continuation of the, the recent past, you know, so growth and inflation will remain low, disappointing, you know, monetary policy will remain accommodative as a result or can remain accommodative as a, as a result. So interest rates will remain low. The asset class toolkits that you need to bring to bear, um, it does evolve just because of the way that asset prices have moved in the last year, but it doesn't change too much. You know, growth stocks continue to dominate. Uh, gold solves, you know, part of your government bond problem, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the other uh, side, on the other side are a group who identify uh, this crisis, and most importantly, probably the policy response to this crisis as a turning point of some description. If not for growth, then likely for um, inflation. Now, of course, for that group or that camp, your asset class toolkit evolves probably a little bit more drastically. Some of the losers of the last few years, the last few years of kind of disinflation and so on, are seen as likely winners and vice versa. 
Okay, I mean, it's never unusual to see split views, but of the two broad camps that are emerging for, for this year ahead, do we do we have a preference right now? Does one seem more credible than the other to you? Well, yeah, I mean, as JP will no doubt speak to when you uh, when you speak to him, you, you're, I think you've... You've certainly, and you've certainly heard of this from all of us in the past. Our asset allocation is specifically designed to not take an overconfident bet on any one single future. Uh, it's designed to be robust to you know myriad potential paths ahead. A necessary, you know, we see that as a necessary expression of our humility about the details of the future. However, you know, personally, I do have some sympathy with the second camp. Some of the argument about continuing low growth and inflation. Um, hinges a little bit on the dramatic and sustained changes um, to corporate and consumer risk appetite that we've seen in the aftermath of past pandemics. What that generally means is, you know, consumers save more of their post-tax incomes, and because of something called the paradox of thrift, that results in lower growth. Companies invest less; they're less confident about the future, so on. That also has a bad effect. However, that, that you know, cause and effect does run both ways, but. However, I'm not sure that the details of this um, pandemic are not sufficiently different to past pandemics uh, to warrant weakening or toning this expectation, you know, this expectation down a little bit. For a start, this virus overwhelmingly affects, you know, tragically as we know, the elderly, a cohort with an already very high savings ratio with little further to travel on that, that road, potentially. That is not the same as past pandemics at all, or at least not all of them anyway. However, also the size and you know the scale and speed of the government responses we've seen around the world, and indeed the vaccine success, um, are two things that are also really very different this time. I think all in all, it's enough to keep an open mind. But like I say, personally, um, I do have a sort of slight sense that there are more futures now, more future paths that lie ahead that contain some problematic inflation than there were before this crisis. It's a sort of usual hedged way of <laughs> saying things in economists speak, but yeah, hopefully you get the point. Fantastic. Thanks, Will. And I think that's probably a good moment to bring in Rob Smith, our head of behavioral finance. Now, Rob, you're here to sort of help us all become better investors, so to speak, both our clients and the teams actually employed internally here at Barclays, you know, who are making those asset allocation decisions on behalf of our clients. 2020 must have been, you know, an incredibly interesting year in in your career. Uh, But what do you think is maybe the most uh, important lesson you'd extract from 2020 to give investors looking to improve their their performance for 2021 as we as we go into the next year. I feel, yeah, I think I'd say it's quite broad, but the number one thing I'd say is is be prepared. And so, you know, I, I guess given this year and given previous years of, of of investments, we know that you know the the reality versus what people think about going into their investment journey can be quite different. So. The long-term path for investment returns is what we aim for uh, as investors, uh, but the reality is the short-term, you know, market movements can can make it very hard to achieve those sort of long-term returns which we're trying to get. So, I think having realistic expectations and thinking through what outcomes could look like is very important. And to that extent, um, it's really good for investors to think about having an investment constitution. So, you know, the word constitution. What does that mean? I think it's quite apt this year to talk about constitution given the political landscape and, and how they've been brought to the fore. But really what it is, it's a set of rules uh, that dictates you know, how you want to behave in the future. So it's a tool that makes you think about, okay, what are the possible scenarios that I could be faced with as an investor in the future and how do I want to behave under those scenarios? So it might start with you know, looking at now how you want to get invested, 
what are the ways, you know, what are the ways I'm going to behave? Okay, I'm going to get invested over a period of time and, and you have that written down. But also, you know, when we see trouble in markets, if we see, well, not if, but when we see drawdowns, you know, we don't know when or exactly how big, but when we do, you know, how will you try and put those into perspective? Because to have that sort of almost written down and something to look back on can be a really useful tool for stable journey. Okay. So, I mean, basically a bit of homework for me, make a contract with myself, maybe do that over the quieter Christmas period if I if I get a chance. Now we've already had Will deride the sort of predictions game, but I do think it's quite amazing how popular predictions are in some ways, in particular at this time of year, we see a whole plethora of them across sort of media channels. This year kind of, I suppose, illustrated their shortcomings, I would imagine, but yet the appetite to to sort of go down that route of predictions does seem pretty undiminished. You know, what are your thoughts on that, Rob? Well, I mean... On the reasons why, I guess this is a subject that's that's very well uh, studied in academia, something I find fascinating that, that maybe not everyone does. But the, the reality is that when it comes down you know, to it, our brains are wired somewhat to crave certainty. So a sense of uncertainty generates sort of a, a threat response in our what's called the limbic system, which is what governs our emotional responses. And it's, it's, it's essentially like a type of pain. So the greater certainty, on the other hand, promotes uh, like a reward response in our brain. So it feels good. So what that means is we often crave information and for the sake of it, um, and that information doesn't necessarily have to be accurate or make us any better as a decision maker. It just reduces the uncertainty and gives us a burst of dopamine. And although it feels good, it doesn't mean that it has to be good for us in terms of the outcome it leads to. I think this explains why we're receptive and even drawn to anyone who claims to help provide some certainty. And when it, when it comes to investing in financial markets in particular, our quest for certainty is not going to be diminished, that's for sure. And as Will alludes to, you know, there's no shortage of those willing to give that certainty. Whether or not they really have any ability to provide this accurately is, is an important point. And the problem is we live in a world which is dominated by anything but certainty. So I think the ability to provide any lasting accuracy in assessments of the future requires not only skill and hard work, but also humility. Now, I guess one important thing to bear in mind is, is where we are now, the proliferation of information and opinion, so the amount of it that's at our fingertips means it's never been more important to have a really good filter in terms of how we receive the information we do. It's really important to sort of ask yourself, you know, do I like this information or this story or this opinion simply because it appeals to that sense of certainty? You know, does it help me you know, provide some narrative of, of, of some of these data points that I'm seeing? Or... Is it actually seem to be balanced? You know, is there some acknowledgement that there are different interpretations and there isn't just one possible outcome for, for certainty? And I think that's important to bear in mind when you're when you're as an investor looking at looking at information and news. That's really useful, Rob. Thank you. I mean, obviously, you know, we'll clearly write to downplay predictions for sort of years ahead. And I suppose you and I have alluded to this on our sort of sister podcast, the Personal Finance Series, that actually investing isn't necessarily supposed to be that exciting. One final one for you, though, and maybe a little bit of, if you like, behavioural counselling for me. So a number of our listeners may have found themselves in a similar scenario to me, maybe had a bit of savings building up over the course this year, having not really gone out and gone on holiday as much as one might have been used to. 
but at the same time been watching sort of markets going all over the place lots of news headlines and i know you know i, I know i should listen to you and and will when you say that today is always the best day to be getting that money invested but it just never quite feels that easy there's always a reason to put that day off or or, or put the investment off what tips have you got to help me make this commitment with myself a bit like that earlier contract Yes, I think one important point here is it's often investing is seen as a very sort of digital behavior. So it's either I invest what is potentially a significantly large portion of my money and, and leave it at the mercy of the vagaries of capital markets, or I keep all my money in the warm um, sort of safety of, of cash. Now, as you say before, and the right answer for, for many, especially those with longer term horizons, particularly very long term horizons, is to get invested now and, and potentially to, to, to have a greater exposure to, to risky assets. But in the short term, this is going to feel potentially like very high risk investments. So what it means is it, it can be difficult to build up the emotional reserves to, to, to take that jump with what is huge, significant amounts of our money to get invested. So I think what we want to do is try and create ways to engender some commitment from us to, to get invested without necessarily having to face this huge, big decision. So one of the things we'd like to, to, to talk about is this idea of what we call phasing in and, and not just whenever you feel like investing, get invested, because what you'll tend to find is you probably end up trying to time the market, but actually say, OK, over a period of whatever it may be, maybe 12 months, maybe six months, I'm going to phase in my investments. I'm going to put in a, a, a drip feed a lump sum in every every now and again and that provides me some emotional comfort that I know you know that I'm not putting everything all in the markets all at once and, and expose myself to that big risk um, and you know if, if there are some drop-offs in the market I'll buy some things at, at, at cheaper prices but also at the same time you know if those longer term trends of, of upward prices maintain at least at least I am bought in and I'm buying and I'm getting invested as soon as I can from an emotional point of view. Fantastic. Probably a good time for me over Christmas to to revisit that uh, regular payment into into my ISA. Thank you very much, Rob, for joining us, and uh, we'll hear more, no doubt, in the new year. Next up, we have Ian Aylward. Ian happily wears a couple of hats, so to speak. He's also one of our foremost experts on the matter of selecting winning funds of, of all types, which is obviously very useful. However, he's also one of my colleagues responsible for responsible investing here at Barclays. So you'll have heard him, I'm sure, on the regular podcast speaking very eloquently on all things environmental, sustainable and impact related. I guess really I wanted to tackle two main outlook subjects today with you, Ian. Um, The rise and rise of ESG investing and also one of the hot topics of the year, the, the incredible divergence, I think, between value and growth styles of investing. So let's just start off with ESG. We've seen a huge surge of interest this year. It really feels like quite a landmark year in many senses. Do you think 2020 will will be seen as a genuine turning point for ESG and impact investing? Hi, Phil. I wouldn't say this year alone was was a turning point as such. You know, as a basic concept, ESG is hardly new. If we cast our minds back, ethical investing funds, you know, funds that simply screened out some unwanted sectors, actually go back over a quarter of a century. And personally, I remember sitting next to the ethical fund manager in my very first job out of university back in the 90s. But as you allude to, in the last few years, it's really become much more mainstream and indeed nuanced. Of course, one is investing in order to make greater long-term financial gains and simply saving on deposit. 
But alongside this, one can invest whilst incorporating one's values. I would say that there has been a steadily growing awareness of ESG and impact investing, particularly over the last three or four years, and that this year has certainly reached new heights. I would measure that in a variety of ways. So, you know, column inches, firstly, or, or whatever the digital equivalent of that is. Um, secondly, fund launches, thirdly, client interests, etc. And an additional catalyst in 2020, as you, would, as you allude to, was looming regulations. You know, this isn't the place to get into the, the details of those, but essentially, European fund managers are having to classify their funds from an ESG perspective more clearly and additionally to report on the ESG activities of their fund holdings in a much more quantifiable manner in future. Fantastic. Thanks, Ian. So, I mean, certainly growing momentum in this space, and we're going to no doubt see more as we head into 2021 in this space. Um, my second question, Ian, is probably uh, the other part of your job. So uh, in terms of the fund selection, do you think maybe the, the trend for investment fund managers to become ever more active in the management of the funds, do you think that's likely to continue? And by that, I mean, you know, do you think there'll continue to be a greater focus on higher conviction positions within the funds? Because, I mean, frankly, when paying fees, surely that's a good thing. Okay, so so I think maybe firstly, I should say that just as ESG, as we've spoken about, is a powerful and enduring trend, so is the role of passive investing. And this simply means that holding equities or bonds in the same weights as in the benchmark index, such as the FTSE 100, for example, in order to match it rather than beat it. Now, the amount of assets following a passive approach is far greater in the US, it's actually about 50% uh, than here. And so, you know, like so many things where the US leads, the UK you know, is likely to eventually follow. As such, you know, active managers, so those that are seeking to beat the benchmark, really do need to deliver and justify their existence. Now, this requirement manifests itself in a, a whole manner of ways, but to do, perhaps to just give a couple of those here, you know, we are seeing increasing amounts of mergers between fund groups in the US. So examples you know, just in the latter half of, of, of 2020 include between Morgan Stanley Investment Management and Eaton Vance, and between Franklin Templeton and Leg Mason. Secondly, indeed, the funds themselves um, are becoming more active and by that, I mean in the sense that they're more different to the benchmark and they're exhibiting higher conviction. So back to your question, is that a good thing um, or are these a good thing? I'm not convinced that being a bigger fund group is actually better for investors in those groups' funds. That is distinct from the shareholders in, in the firm's equity being better off. But I do think that funds being more active is a good thing, especially as you say, you know, in order to get value, real value for money. There is, though, one proviso. Being more active means having performance more different to the benchmark, if I could put it like that. And of course, this can be more better <laughs> or more worse than the benchmark. And so it's absolutely you know, ever more essential to assess the future prospects of funds with appropriate resources and skills. 
Fantastic. And I think I'll uh, I'll leave that to you and the team. Finally, just an area I want to touch on that that value versus growth argument. And for for the uninitiated, this is simply another way of I suppose cutting up the the stock market and and sort of equity investing. So you can do this by country, you can do it by sector, or you can do it by style, as in um, this sort of value versus growth. And there's quite a lot of overlap there as well. So I mean, obviously in the UK. You know, we see what tends to be thought of as quite a value-orientated index, um, and in the US, you know, we see a little bit more of the growth coming through. So, in, in, in another way, looking back at this year, yeah, it's a, a way of viewing the the significant outperformance of US stock markets over the UK over the course of, of 2020. But I guess the question in is whether you feel as convinced in the idea that we should diversify across styles, as you did say before 2020, having seen, as I say, the, the, the moves and the dispersion between those two styles over the course of this last year. I think I do feel, in fact, given the returns that these two approaches over 2020, or at least until the end of October uh, this year, I feel even more convinced that we should diversify across styles. Examples of growth stocks include firms in the technology sector, uh, whilst examples of value stocks include firms in the financial sector. Now, some commentators liken the relative outperformance to a piece of elastic being stretched. You know, the longer and more pronounced the extreme, the greater the snapback. Of course, though, as per Will's comments earlier, attempting to make predictions about the timing of such things is, you know, is often tantamount to guesswork. But what we do know is that we have been at such valuation discrepancies before. You know, there was the Nifty 50 in the early 70s, the tech bubble, of course, of the late 90s. And, you know, they, they certainly did not end well. Very few see the catalysts for correction coming. And many commentators, of course, often argue that it's different this time. But perhaps the initial steps that the Chinese have have taken recently to lessen the dominance of their technology companies, or indeed the suing of Facebook in the USA by regulators in December, or the rollout of the coronavirus vaccines may herald the start of a reversal in relative performance. Then again, perhaps not. But what I do know is that staying diversified in all respects, including between value and growth styles, is, is surely the prudent thing to do. Indeed, very sound advice, Ian. And so last but not least today, we have JP Yeagers, our head of asset allocation. So for those less familiar with the podcast, JP runs the team that's responsible for both the longer term positioning of our investment portfolios, we refer to this as strategic asset allocation, as well as also overseeing our shorter term responses to world events and and that being our tactical asset allocation. So JP asked this of Rob earlier on, but would love your view as well. What one thing would you be taking away from 2020? Hi Phil. Yes, indeed, 2020 has been quite some. It has been quite a year. So on a on a personal level, it has made a huge impact, I think, on most of us, and it will likely be an experience which lasts, which leaves a long lasting impression in a memory. But on the investment side, I think investors and independent, how experienced, had to grapple with a new type of event. So where policymakers were quick to roll out measures in order to stem the impact. Is what we witnessed was a huge sell-off in financial markets when governments imposed lockdown measures, but an equally sharp and robust rebound since March up to now. My lesson is probably just a good reminder that despite the vast knowledge out there, the future remains uncertain at all times. 
Moreover, uh, emotions play a very important role in the midst of a crisis. Therefore, investment decisions, in our view, should be based on long-term strategic views on the right mix of investment instruments. Quite 2020 providing a, a good reminder of that. We've already had Will and Rob share their disapproval of these so-called periodic outlooks. Nonetheless, this is an outlook-focused podcast, so I'm hoping you'll come to the rescue <laughs> and actually provide us maybe with some predictions of some sort, at least. I'll, I'll do my best, Phil. So it's on, on, on a high level, uh, we, we do see that governments and the scientific community are working very, very hard to get societies a step closer to normality. And with vaccination programs starting imminently, 2021 could be a year of the cyclical upswing for the economies. So this could be a positive for riskier asset classes as companies restore their profitability and we see consumer confidence gets an uplift. And historically, we have seen that when the economy rebounds, this is an environment where riskier assets like shares, commodities, or corporate bonds do quite well. But of course, there remains, as always, room for disappointment. And we do know that unforeseen events will come and go. Despite the fact that we have limited confidence in our ability to get the future right, and in particular, do that all the time uh, correctly, there are some things we can do, of course, over time and when we invest on behalf of our clients. First, we, we can sense the current expectations of the future as reflected in the broader invest, investor community. So in other words, if everyone is very optimistic or very pessimistic, potentially with a bit too much confidence, uh, and here at a portfolio level, we can make some modest changes and tilt asset classes based on the potential of a near-term swing. So it could be some disappointment or a positive surprise. Second, some economic trends will not change or disappear from day to day. So for example, interest rates are currently extremely low. This is largely reflected in asset prices and expectations, but this will, for example, result in investors continue to look for investment opportunities outside deposit accounts or some bond markets. This, I'm afraid that the best advice uh, remains to be invested across a broad range of asset classes based on a strategic view that the collective portfolio is a good reflection of your individual risk appetite and tolerance. Fantastic. I won't hold you to it, but I will take some of your optimism into into 2021, particularly around that broader portfolio. In the context, though, of perpetual uncertainty, and we talk about this all the time, there's always you know, uncertainty out there. There are always new things, news headlines that are coming to the fore. Could you maybe just finally touch upon how we actually, how you and the team go about designing client portfolios that we can invest in you know, with, with some confidence for the long term? Yeah, yeah, of, of course. So, so, so the first step, of course, what we take is when we select on behalf of our clients is that we select a range of assets as we feel that for the long-term investor diversification, that means spreading your risk, is, is, is key. And we aim to make the investment portfolios as robust as possible for many potential futures. Here, we just not solely rely on our view of the world, but we mix and match history hundreds of thousands of times so that we get many potential future outcomes. All of those outcomes shape the portfolio. So what we do then next is instead of using the weekly ups and downs of that portfolio, as often is measured by risk, we tend more to look towards drawdowns. That means a pullback in portfolio values as a measure of risk. We aim to get the balance right by ensuring a good degree of diversification. 
Then finally, over time, we tilt these portfolio proportions ever so slightly to benefit from the near-term swings in asset prices. That's great. Thank you so much, JP. I hope that does give our invested clients some comfort in the work that you and the team uh, are un- undertaking day to day on their behalf within the portfolios. And so that really just leaves me to thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this 2021 Outlook special and to wish you and your families a very safe and enjoyable festive period, whatever that's going to entail this year. If you would like to hear more from us, in particular as the Brexit timetable uh, evolves over the next few days and weeks, please do seek out our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we'll share all of our latest views on world development. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.